0: James chapter 1, verses 9, 10, and 11. It's good news for everybody today. I'm going to talk about everybody's favorite subject. I'm going to talk to you about your money. And that's the best, right, when somebody else talks to you about your money. But here's my promise today. I'm not going to ask you for any of it. Uh, We've already taken the offering, you'll notice, uh, so we won't be doing that again. Uh, And then I'm not going to tell you how to spend it, what you should do with it. So I feel like I'm on safe ground to uh, to say whatever I want because I'm not going to ask you for your money and I'm not going to tell you what to do with your money. But James is gonna bring up our money a few times as we make our way through this book because probably what has happened in the churches that he's writing to, there has become a set of classes. There's upper class and there's lower class and they're based on rich and poor. And the people who are rich are getting special preferential treatment in these churches and James wants no part of it. I love the word of God because as we read it, Uh, We see a wide range of economic diversity inside of it. We see the rich, we see the middle, and we see the poor. I mean, right away from the beginning, Abraham, the patriarch of God's people, was wealthy by even our most modern definitions. And then on the other extreme, you have Jesus himself, who, who left everything he could have had as a carpenter to, to start his ministry. And what did he say? He said, actually, foxes and birds have more to call their own than he did. And he was, he was dependent on the generosity of other people. Uh, Again, to the other extreme, you have Lydia in Philippi, Acts chapter 16, a business owner, an entrepreneur. She was one of the first people to receive the gospel of Jesus in that town. And without her generosity and her wealth, the church of Philippi may never have taken off because she ended up hosting the church inside of her home. Uh, Again, on the other extreme, you have the disciples. Uh, They took that Uh, impoverished life as they followed Jesus. They left their vocations, they left their calling, uh, they left their bank accounts, they left their means of income to follow Jesus. Uh, But at the same time, in those same gospels, we see followers of Jesus like Joseph of Arimathea, who was a wealthy man who felt no pressure to leave his vocation, to leave his wealth. In fact, through his wealth, he provided a tomb for Jesus to be buried in after the crucifixion. So what that tells us today is, today is not about whether you have a lot or have a little. That's really of, of, of no consequence. Um, what we're talking about today uh, should apply to all of us, no matter who we are. So you don't have to feel bad if you have a lot, and you don't have to feel bad if you have a little, and you don't have to feel bad if you are somewhere in between. The question isn't about what you have or what you don't have. It is what is your calling with what you have and with what you don't have. James chapter 1. Verse 9, the brother of humble circumstances should boast in his exaltation or his position, but the one who is rich should boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and dries up the grass, its flowers fall off and its beautiful appearance is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will wither away while pursuing his activities. A few things I'd love for you to remember, maybe potentially write down. The first one is wealth is determined by your context, not your assets. Wealth is determined by your context and not your assets. I want you to think about your house, the house that you live in right now, whether it's two bedroom, three bedroom, or it's an apartment, whatever it is, I want you to think about uh, your house. And, and I would guess that you've been in houses smaller than yours and bigger than yours. Um, worse than yours, better than yours. Like I'm right now thinking about my friend... Uh, Anderson in El Salvador. Anderson is just a little guy uh, in elementary school, and we partner with him through Compassion International. And my son Jackson and I have actually been to Anderson's house. And Anderson's house consists of really just one room. Uh, the kitchen is not even inside the house. It's outside the house. And by kitchen, I don't mean appliances. I essentially mean just the table where they would prepare food. No microwave, no refrigerator, no oven, uh, no mixer, nothing. Just a table. That's their kitchen on the outside of their house. On the inside of their house is, again, just one room, and it's the bedroom, Uh, a a queen-size bed at best that the whole family shares, the brothers, the sisters, the mom, and dad. And compared to Anderson's house, I feel like I live in extravagance. But I have a friend named Lee, and uh, compared to Lee's house, I feel like my house is, is, is honestly pretty terrible. Lee has a gate outside of his house, and I don't mean like his neighborhood is gated. I mean his house has its own gate. And then you drive down a long, uh, crushed granite driveway, uh, some ponds on your right. This was a friend that I had in high school. Uh, some ponds uh, on your right, and then you have to cross a bridge. If you have to cross a bridge to get to your house, that's a pretty sweet house, Right? <laughs> Then once you got into his house, he had three living rooms uh, that were professionally decorated. Now, I grew up in Springfield, Missouri. That's where this house was. And I uh, had never been in a house that had been professionally decorated. These living rooms looked like nobody ever went in them. That's how you know a classy place. If it looked like nobody could even live there, that's classy. And that's what these living rooms look like. Uh, in his hallway, there were live plants uh, up above. It didn't even really make any sense, uh, but uh, there were live plants up above above, and there was a secret staircase that you had to take in order to get up to water those plants. So let me just rewind this house for you. Gate outside the house, long crushed granite driveway, bridge, not bad. Uh, Inside, three professionally decorated living rooms. Not three rooms, three different living rooms professionally decorated, and a secret staircase. That's a pretty awesome house. So compared to him, I I, I feel like I don't have much. And that was the nicest house I had ever been in. Uh, But uh, then we went on vacation, Amanda, and I did to the coast of, uh, of central California. There's a place called San Simeon, California. And William Randolph Hearst, he was a newspaper and publishing magnet from the first half of the 1900s. He bent, he built his dream house there. Uh, the name of the house is Hearst Castle. First of all, if you have a name for your house, That's rarefied air right there. And if the word castle is in the name of your house, this is something special. It's the biggest building I've probably been in, just ornately decorated. This estate is magnificent. uh, magnificent. That's not even a word. You know what I'm talking about. Is it a word? I feel like maybe it is a word. It's not a word. You know what I'm trying to say. It's awesome. You try this. It's really hard. It's really hard to say so many words it's magnificent. Thank you. I feel like if that gets applause, the standard here is so low. The standard here is so low. It's so magnificent that the, the state of California declared it a state park. Now, let me just rewind California for you. They have Yosemite National Park. They have Death Valley. They have Big Sur. They have the Channel Islands. Uh, they have the giant Redwood Sequoias. That state where all that amazing stuff is looked at this house and said, This house is so unbelievable. Let's just make it an official park. So it doesn't matter who you are in here today, whether you would consider yourself of modest income and means, or you would honestly, if you were giving an honest assessment, you would be among the top 1%, like you have a lot of resources. All of us today could compare ourselves to somebody that would make us feel like we have everything, but we could also compare ourselves to people who would make us feel like we have nothing. And I would guess for most of us today, we felt both things in the last seven days, We've bumped into somebody or some context that made us just blown away and grateful for what we do have. And then we've bumped into somebody, looked at what they have and go, you know what, I'm a total failure in life. I thought I was really something and apparently I'm not. I was proud of this home, but uh, I'm not anymore. It seems like a shack compared to what's out there. So what we're talking about today as we talk about money applies to all of us. Both the part about wealth, it applies to you today. And both the part about modesty, it applies to you as well. The second thing I'd love for you to remember, after wealth is determined by your context, not your assets, assets, is it's human nature to boast about your wealth. It's human nature to boast about our wealth. I mean, look at verses nine and 10. "The brother of humble circumstances should boast. In his exaltation or his position, but the one who is rich should boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like the flower of the field. So James assumes there will be boasting. In fact, he's not going to squash it today. He's just going to simply redirect it. But it is human nature to boast about what we have Uh, The book of 1 John actually says this is a part of the world's DNA. Chapter 2, verse 16, it says, For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's lifestyle, another version says, The boasting of what he has and does is not from the Father, but is from the world. So again, he just assumes that there is going to be boasting, but he's not going to tell us not to boast. He's just going to redirect it. In a better way. Third thing I'd love for you to remember is wealth has the staying power of a wildflower. Wealth has the staying power of a wildflower. Verse 10 But the one who is rich should boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and dries up the grass. Its flowers fall off, and its beautiful appearance is destroyed. That's actually a loose quotation from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6 in the Old Testament. Now, what we can't see living here in Houston, Texas, is that in the springtime around February in Palestine, uh, around Israel, the grass would shoot up after a long dead season. And when it shot up, uh, the grass would give off a flower. And they say that the fields of Bethlehem in February look like a carpet of flowers. But by May, all of those flowers are dried up, dead, and gone. And James is using that picture to tell us about the vulnerability of our wealth. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 22 says, a stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know poverty will come upon him. See, that's the reality today is poverty can come upon any of us. Doesn't matter what you have, how much you have, poverty can spring up on any of us. And so trusting in our wealth is like building a sandcastle at the beach and trying to live in it. It might look livable right now, but there are so many factors that can undermine that trustworthiness. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter six, verse 19, don't collect to yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves don't break in and steal. So these, these verses by Jesus tell us just how vulnerable our wealth is. Now thieves, that makes total sense. All of us are scared of thieves. All of us protect ourselves from thieves. But think about moths and rust. Now, honestly, I'm not an expert on the moth, so if you are and I get something wrong, forgive me. But on the surface, do they not seem to be the weakest of all living creatures? I mean, honestly, they do. I mean, have any of you ever really had a bad day because of a moth? No, if it's bothering you, you can shoo it away. You can shoo it away permanently permanently. You can give it to a child and they can love it to death. Right? Because they're just, they're just the weakest of all of the living creatures. Right? And then rust, again, I'm not an expert in metal. But it seems that you would have to leave something out in the elements for a long, long time. Before rust would really, really begin to be a problem. So Jesus is using two things. One that is incredibly weak seemingly harmless on the surface and one that is serious but is incredibly slow-moving to tell us how vulnerable our wealth is. Essentially, that the weakest thing in the world could steal your wealth from you and one of the slowest-moving threats possible could steal it right from underneath you. This is how vulnerable our wealth is. So if you're trusting in it today, you're trusting in something that actually might not be here tomorrow. And then the last thing I'd love for you to observe and write down, remember, it's a challenge for the wealthy to spiritually endure. Verse 11, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and dries up the grass, its flowers fall off and its beautiful appearance is destroyed. In the same way, The rich man will wither away while pursuing his activities. So it says that the the wealthy person, the rich person, is going to wither away while they're going about their business of trying to remain rich and in that position. Now the word endure comes from the verses right before and right after. We looked at that in the first week of James when he wants us to endure the trials and the testing that we are experiencing. And then next week, we're gonna see in verse 12, right after it, a man who endures trials is blessed because when he passes the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So right in the middle of that enduring and enduring as we finish here, he speaks a warning to those of us with wealth that that wealth actually might prevent us from spiritually enduring. Jesus is saying the same thing in Matthew chapter 19. I want you to turn there. Matthew chapter 19. He tells a story, or he has an interaction. It it records a story of Jesus' interaction with a wealthy young man. And this young man comes to him and says, what do I, must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, what have you done? And makes a list of all the things that he's done. Still not giving that young man security. And Jesus says, well, one thing you haven't done, go and sell your belongings and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Verse 22 says, when the young man heard that command, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I assure you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were utterly astonished and asked, then who can be saved? Now, the reason that they're asking this is because there was an assumption among them that if you were wealthy, then all of God's favor was on you. That if you were rich, that it was a sign that God had blessed you and approved of you. So they looked at this rich young man and they're saying, if he can't get into the kingdom of God, what hope do us poor, impoverished guys have? And this is what Jesus says. But he looked at them and said, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So again, it's it's a warning it's not a, for, it doesn't forbid us from generating income. In fact, I, I don't think that you, most of us asked you know, for more and more and more income. Maybe you went and asked for a raise. Maybe you took some chart that said, you know, here's actually what uh, people in my position make. But I would guess that you don't go into your boss every day and, uh, and ask for more and more money. That's a good way to, to not get any money, actually, if, if you do that. You know, so for most of us, uh, this, whatever income is currently on your paycheck you, you really didn't specifically ask for it. you know but none of us is gonna go into our boss's office right now and you know it's, it's October so they're thinking about raises for next year and hey I, I know you're thinking about it I know you're assigning you know where that 3% is gonna go in our department and I just want you to know I actually want a pay decrease this year that would be really fantastic if you could give me less money None of us are gonna do that. Why? Because most of us are not going in and asking for more and more and more and more and more all the time. It's just the money that we have. And so Jesus is not saying the money that you have is the problem. He's saying what it does in you could potentially be the problem. And he compares a rich man getting into the kingdom of God to a camel trying to be pushed through the eye of a needle. So just so that we could all be on the same page, I brought a needle here and you can't even see the needle probably and you definitely can't see the eye of the needle because I can barely see the eye of the needle and I'm right here. Now I know that all of you wove your own clothes today so I'm just telling you about things that you already know. But the hardest part of sewing is not the actual sewing. The hardest part of sewing is trying to jam the end of this thread through this tiny little hole, isn't it? Your sewing project will take 20 minutes, and 15 of those minutes will be you trying to, you know, lick the end of that thread to get it through here. And essentially, what I have learned from all of my vast experience is that to get the end of this thread through the eye of this needle is pure luck and the favor of God. That's it. In fact, this hole in this needle is so small, I think it's physically impossible to get the end of the string in here. So Jesus takes this picture and he said, imagine trying to push a camel through a hole this size. It's easier for a person who has wealth and all of us again today have some kind of wealth into the kingdom of God you start asking yourself why 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 would it be easier to 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 fit a camel through this hole than to get a rich person in the kingdom well what wealth does and this is the good the good part about having money is it opens doors for us doesn't it like some of your parents had some amount of wealth some amount of money and that enabled you to go to a certain college And that college was an open door for you. It was an advantage. It was an opportunity. And when you got to that college, even more doors were open to you, to this major and that major, to this group of friends, this group of associates, this Uh, certain professor. And those doors led to more doors, which led to more doors, which led to a graduation. Now you're graduating with a degree and a major that's going to open up a lot of vocation doors for you. And once you get through those doors, then you, you notice, man, once I'm in the vocation doors, because I even have this specific job, this was my starter job. Now all these other opportunities are available to me because that's what wealth does. It opens doors and generates opportunities and that's what we're used to we're used to our wealth whether it's a lot or a little providing for us and what that also provides for us is the opportunity for pride so for most of us as our lifestyle has increased unfortunately so has our pride so then we become the person saying oh you don't think a camel can fit through the eye of this needle I bet it can I'll take on that challenge. I've had door after door after door after door after door after door after, door after opportunity open for me, open to me because of my wealth, because of my background, because of my parents' wealth, because of my situation, because of my job title, because of the neighborhood I've looked in, uh, lived in. So uh, doors just automatically open to me. Why would a camel not be able to fit through the eye of this needle if I am a part of it? And the difference between, I think, a person with wealth and a person without wealth is the person with wealth that's gonna stand there longer trying to get the camel through the eye of a needle because they're used to always getting a yes. They're used to the door always opening, but a person without opportunity is probably going to give up faster. And it's in the giving up that we turn to God. So again, however many zeros are in your paycheck, irrelevant to this conversation today. However big your home is, irrelevant To the conversation. What is relevant is how big is your pride? How big is your ego? How big is your self sustainment? Because some of us are standing there thinking, My wealth has opened all other doors for me. Why would it not open up the door to the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, That's not what it's about. It's about giving up, actually. You know, some of us have been wrestling with. Jesus for quite a long time and you know that you're apart from him. You know that what the Bible says is that you're apart from eternal life, but, but you just wrestle with it. And you've, you've sought every possible skepticism out. You've read every possible book that could disprove the Bible, that could disprove faith. You've sought and hunted down every possible reason and excuse not to believe. And today you just need to give up. Today you just need to realize that your intellect, your wealth, your influence, your position cannot open the door to eternal life. It's time to admit that the camel won't fit through the eye of a needle. But here's the good news. They say, who can be saved? If this guy can't be saved, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. This is the gospel to the wealthy. It is impossible for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle unless you are God. God can fit the camel through the eye of a needle. So if you're a person of incredible means today, it's good news. If you're a person who has more wealth than my friend Anderson in El Salvador, good news, God can get you through the eye of the needle. Your pride, what you have, doesn't have to be an obstacle. So, what's the application today? Well, James gives it to us in the first two sentences. What are we supposed to do? James chapter 1. The brother of humble circumstances or modest circumstances should boast in his exaltation. The way the New American Standard translates that is the brother of humble circumstance is to glory in his high position. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about if you and I are a person of modest income, if we don't have a lot, that's not something that we should be ashamed of. Now, it would be weird for us to be proud of it, I think. Like, for a long time, I drove a 2005 Chevy Suburban. Uh, it's charcoal gray, leather interior. We bought it used, a few years old. Uh, but we bought it up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And at the time, hardly anybody was driving a, a 2005 Chevy Suburban. So it felt kind of like a luxury car. And then that's a good feeling. If you're going to have to buy a car, you might as well feel good in it, right? And so it felt nice. You know, when I go up to the valet, I'd be like, yeah, that's right. I roll deep. That's how I do, you know? It felt good. And then we moved to Houston. And uh, in our neighborhood at the time, uh, a few years ago, there were a bunch of not just 2005 Chevy Suburbans, but charcoal gray Chevy Suburbans. So I wasn't unique anymore. And the weirdest thing is that the rest of those Suburbans were driven by women, and I was driving the Suburban. And so it, it just felt weird, you know, like uh, it would be me and a bunch of soccer moms driving this car, and so suddenly I didn't feel that proud uh, about the Suburban anymore, but it was a good car, and we drove it, and we drove it, and we drove it until we got up to about 200,000 miles, when you get up to 200,000 miles, that's, you just feel proud about that kind of stewardship, but stuff starts falling apart, like the first thing uh, that uh, that uh, fell apart was the windows, the, uh, they stopped working, you know, and I don't mean they just, like, just wouldn't roll down, I mean the windows would fall down into the doors, I don't know if that's ever happened to you, So I fixed the first few but after a while I thought I'm just not going to do this over and over again so I took the plastic pieces off of the interior doors and then shoved two by fours up there to hold the glass in place and then put the plastic back so you couldn't really tell but the motors of the engine didn't even pretend to work they didn't even make a noise Uh, and then the air conditioning and heating system would go out uh, where in the summer it would blow out hot air and in the winter it would blow out cold air. I don't know how the car knew when the seasons were changing but it did And the beautiful thing was, is it would only mess up on my side, on Amanda's side, blessed and highly favored by God. It worked perfectly, but on my side. So when it came winter of that year, even though we have mild winters here, it's still not fun to have air conditioning blowing on you all the time. And so I couldn't shut it off. If I shut it off, then everything was shut off. So what I would do is I would take napkins and I would shove them down into the vents and then duct tape the vent so that nothing would blow out. So there was a day when I was proud to roll into the valet and hand him my keys. But then when that started happening and others, I mean, we had two kids and they did all of their kid business in the car. I don't know what it is about the car that they think I'm just going to make a giant mess right here, uh, but they do. It's amazing. So I'd roll up to the valet and be like, can I park it myself? I know that you're gonna park it right there where I can see it. Just let me park it and I'll still tip you. It'd be a good thing. I don't want you to get in here. That's how bad it is. And what is James saying? Is James saying that we should all start bragging about our modest cars, that we should boast, that we should say to people, hey, come over to my house and see my brand new TV. It's 24 inches. It's high definition. You've heard of high definition? I think it's new Uh, technology on the market. Come and see my 24-inch TV. Is that what he's saying? Is that we should brag, we should boast about our modesty? I don't think so. But here's his application to the wealthy. Verse 10, but the one who is rich should boast in his humiliation. Meaning he should boast about the things that his money can't buy because he will pass away like a flower of the field. Here's what James is saying in verses 9, 10, and 11. Is in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven, there will be no label of rich, middle, or poor. That's fading away. That's passing away. So if you're wealthy now, when you get into heaven, no one's gonna be impressed by your wealth. They're not gonna be impressed by your drawbridge out in front of your house. They're not gonna be impressed that you had the word castle in the name of your house. They're not gonna be impressed by all the amazing things that you were able to do. It's just not gonna be that impressive in heaven, your wealth here. And if you are modest and live a life of modest means, when you get to heaven, nobody's gonna care. It's not going to matter that you didn't have those opportunities. It's not going to matter that you didn't have that house. It's not going to matter that you didn't have that much money. It's not going to ha- matter that th- th- that many doors didn't open for you. All those labels are passing away and here's what James is saying is if they're going to eventually pass away in heaven, let's go ahead and let them pass away here. Among the believing community, among the family of God, among followers of Jesus, there is no rich, there is no middle, there is not poor. It's not how we see ourselves. We should boast about the things that are true. So if you're a person of wealth, don't boast about your wealth. Boast about your kids. Boast about the love of your family. Boast about the peace of God that lives in your heart. And if you're a modest means, don't boast about your modesty. You don't boast about what you wish you had. You don't boast about the things that you pretend to have. You boast that God has provided for you so far. You boast that uh, when you prayed, he answered. You boast about your kids. You boast about the love of your family. You boast about your status as a son or a daughter of God. The labels of rich, middle, and poor, they're eventually gonna pass away. So on earth, as it is in heaven, Let's pray. God, I pray as long as there is a Bayou City Fellowship that there would be no class here of rich, middle, or poor. I pray that those names and titles that are so important in the world would have no importance here. Only faith, kindness, love, passion. Those would be our labels here. And God, I pray that you would rescue us from the trap of comparison. It's what drives so much of our boasting because others have more. It won't matter that others have more in your kingdom, so I pray that it wouldn't matter as much here on earth. And Holy Spirit, we know that that's a supernatural work that can't just be mere religious speak to have any effect. But by the power of the name of Jesus, would you help us to see that what we have is what we have. But what matters are the things of eternal value. So do this powerful work. I can't think of a more practical and specific word that you can give us than to speak to us about these things. And I pray that it would resonate and go down deep. Pray that you would not deliver us over to the evil one in temptation, but you would rescue us from him, his trap of comparison, material things. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.